0: Hello everyone. Welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the dark and winding paths that lead us around the Delmarva Peninsula. Today we'll be exploring a case going back to 1904. To give you a little bit of a background on how I found the case, I was looking actually for more like an anniversary case, meaning that I wanted to go back a hundred years from the date that I anticipated. You know, putting out the episode. Well, in the process of doing that, I found a case that was mentioned a few times in the 1922 newspapers that I was reading. Now, the case itself, you know, again, was from 1904, but there were some updates that were in the 1922 papers, just a couple short snippets, but it was enough to make me want to read a little more into it. And when I did, I just kind of, I wanted to get the story out there because there's so much today that, you know, I can see it aligning with. There are cases that we hear about, unfortunately, in a very, very um, regular basis about families that have a foster child or children. And I've actually been looking at doing kind of a compilation of cases to try to see you know, what commonalities are as, you know, community members, are there things that we can look out for um, in cases of child abuse? And so this just kind of caught my eye for that reason, because, you know, once we get into the story, you'll see that the victim is now an adult, but she was raised by this family. And, you know, it's just so heartbreaking that she didn't get a chance to live and also, we don't really know that much about her. I also noticed that there's such a big difference between 1904 and 2022. And yes, that is obvious in a number of different ways. But when it comes to the judicial system, forensic evidence, it was kind of seeing a juxtaposition of you know what they had then and what we see now. Forensics were just hardly anywhere close to what we have today. There were a few scientific things mentioned in this case, but not many at all. In terms of the legal system, the trial happened very quickly, and there were quite a few things that I found questionable about how the state ran its case from the law enforcement to the actual prosecution, and even before that, when investigations were being done by a coroner's jury. And I'll explain a little bit about what that is when we get there. So there was just a lot that made me want to kind of dive deep into it and, you know, look at why, given the fact that types of cases like this has been, these have been happening for centuries, why haven't things gotten better? Two phrases just kind of kept going around in my head one of them being that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it and the more things change the more they stay the same. I'm surprised too that this case about um, her name was Estelle Albin. Some places reported it as Estella and a lot of other places used her nickname which was Essie. She was a very young woman who we don't know a lot of the situation behind why she went to stay with the pals, but they were, even if not technically or formally, her foster parents. That's the role they acted in, and it turned into a tragedy. Just one side note as well is once I started looking into Essie Albin's case, I found mention of the Cordelia Botkin case a few times. I did cover that Case in one of my earlier episodes, um, Death by Chocolate. It's where a woman living in California by the name of Cordelia Botkin mailed a box of poison chocolates to her ex lover's wife, the wife who also happened to be the daughter of a former representative for Delaware. So she was actually the first person to be tried where. When individual crime took place in multiple jurisdictions, as well as where a crime took place by the post office. She had won an appeal and she was being retried in 1904, even though the original trial took place in 1898. Before we get into the story too much, I just want to go over a couple of things. One is a reminder that technically and legally, everybody is innocent until proven guilty with some of the evidence given in the trial, will probably form an opinion about someone who was not convicted of a crime. So still just keep that in mind. Also, I I believe I have mentioned my other podcast um, on this podcast before. It's called Mystifyingly Missing True Crime and Thought Provoking Events. I know it should be a shorter title, but I just can't cover everything that I want to cover in that podcast, in a couple of words. But while also looking at this case, I came across one that my sister had actually mentioned to me, and it took place in New Jersey. This one is a little bit more well known. It's not ultra famous as a case, but it is, you know, one that many people have probably heard about. And that was the the Hall Mills case. And, you know, again, it took place in New Jersey. And it also involved some of the same elements that we'll see in this case, such as jealousy. I probably won't have that one out until around the 10th or 11th of October. But I will leave a link to the podcast itself in the description. So if you just want to go take a listen, um, that will be there for you. I will also link my descri- or my sources in the description of the episode. A number of the articles that I read were from newspaper.com or newspapers.com. So as that has a paywall, what I'll do is even though I'll leave the link, I will then also put the name and date of the newspaper that it came from so if you are able to access that access that in another way other than through newspapers.com you'll have that available. Fortunately, I was able to find a couple of other sources. One was from a Kent County, Delaware um, genealogy site that had a lot of information about different crimes that took place, and they had information that they typed in from the Baltimore Sun, so that was of great help, as well as some court documents, actually, which was very surprising because sometimes I can't even find court documents from current cases. So the fact that I found some you know, from 1904, it was very surprising, but did give a lot of information, even though it was not about the whole trial itself. Those um, pieces of documents were a summary of the rulings that the judges had made, such as admissibility of certain types of evidence. Also, I will have a link for PayPal in the description And that's because, you know, sometimes I do come across resources that need to be paid for, whether it's through newspapers.com or another type of subscription service that I have to go through. Um, That would just be to help offset some of the costs. I realize that everyone may not be able to, and I definitely understand that. But if anyone would like to donate, I would greatly appreciate that. And finally, a disclaimer um, about some of the topics that we'll have today. I've already said some that we'll be getting into more detail with about abuse of those that were in this couple's care. There will also be mention of suicide as part of the defense. So there may be some triggering um, incidents that take place in the episode. With that being said, let's get into the story. Now, I you know that this episode or this topic will take at least two episodes. Um, if you listen to the podcast regularly, you probably know it. it's usually a little bit of a longer um, case study. So I'm looking at at least two. We might get to the point where it's my first three-parter, but I, I think I've been able to streamline some of the information. So we don't have three. I will have the next episode out by the end of the following week, so by October 14th. So it will be closer together than many of my individual episodes, but that will just give you a time frame you know to look out for it. Um, and if I can get it completed, you know, recorded and edited prior to then, then I will, of course upload it earlier. Sadly, in this case, there's not a lot of information about the individual parties that were involved. Really, the only thing that I could glean from a lot of the information is that one was a scumbag. That, okay, that's my opinion, but I have a feeling a lot of people will probably feel the same thing or feel the same way in regards to this person, and they weren't even the murderer. The foster parents or adopted parents, as they are referred to both um, in articles and documents, were Alfred and Marianne Powell. They had been married since 1897, so about seven years before this case took place. Mrs. Powell had been married prior to that, and around 1894, her husband died in an accident. There's not any information provided about the accident or even what her husband's name was, so I could look that up. But it would be interesting to find out a little bit more about that. However, given the time period, if he'd had an accident and gotten an infection or the accident was severe and there was no way for the medical technology and knowledge of the time to treat him, it may not be, you know, nefarious at all. It's just, you know, kind of a, a thought when not having any information all about the husband and his death, that, you know, makes me wonder a little bit more. Mr. Powell was described as a rancher, and he was pretty well off. You know, of course, he wasn't, you know, ultra rich or anything, but for the area, he was pretty well off. However, the house itself was Mary Ann's as she had inherited it from her previous husband. However, for the most part, it's referred to as Mr. Powell's property um, through any of the information I found. There was at least one tenant that lived on the property at the time, so that also you know allowed them to bring in a little bit more income. Shortly after the Powells got married, a young girl named Estella Albin came to live with them. This would have been about seven years prior also to the case. One of her older sisters dropped her off at the PALS. And there's nothing about the situation um, written as to why um, she was going to live there. This next part is conjecture on my part. There's no mention at all about Estella's parents. So it's leaving me to wonder if they had died. And the older sisters then didn't have a way to support her so they took her to a home that they thought where they could trust the adults living in the home. Now the three older sisters do eventually get married, but Essie does stay on at the Powell home. Just after Essie came to live with them, she and Marianne Powell were baptized at a nearby church during a revival. So during that time afterwards, they had a period of probation within the church. I've never really heard of that before, but that's what it was described as. Um, Essie did pass the probation period, but Marianne did not. The location of the home was in Bowers Beach, Delaware, the closest bigger city or town to Bowers Beach is Dover, which is where the trial will take place as well. The small population of the town has gone up and down over the years, with 2020 having 278 people listed and 2010 having 335. So that was a pretty significant decrease in population given the already lower number. In 1910, which was the closest date I could find, the population was 212. So it's staying around the 200 to 300 mark, usually. What that does, though, is pretty much allow everybody to know everybody else's business. And as we continue, we'll find there may have been some, in my opinion, conflicts of interest that went on because of the case. Um, being in such a small town. To circle back to the foster or adopted family um, references that are made to the pals and Essie, there is not any mention that there was a formal or technical arrangement through a state or a charity organization. And this was a long time ago and the same resources that we have now were not necessarily available back then. About six years prior um, to the murder we'll be discussing today, the Pals had children removed from their home, and they were also fined, Marianne specifically, because of cruelty. That was the charge itself was cruelty. So even though there's not detailed information, one can conclude that there must have been some type of either formal arrangement between the family and the pals, or there was enough information about abuse that the state said they had to step in and you know find out what was going on. There was at least one other instance that I found where a child living in the Powell home had a living relative. One young man, a, a child around five or six years old, had been walking to school and ran into his father so his father was around and they happened to be walking at the same time the father saw evidence of injuries bruising what you know he took to be abuse and reported it while overall the town held the Powell family in esteem there were a lot of people who would have known also that the children were not being taken care of properly and also were being abused according to certain allegations. When thinking about Essie, I, you know, again, this is conjecture, wonder if the arrangement was almost like a barter arrangement, meaning in exchange for room and board, Essie would work around the house and help Mrs. Powell out with things that she needed done. This would have made it more or less of a formal arrangement. And it could have also bolstered the reputation of the Pals in the eyes of the community, looking at them as people who willingly opened their home to help give back to those who needed help the most. At the time of the crime in 1904, though not specifically stated throughout other references in some of the articles, it did seem that at least two other children were in their care at the time. Now we make it to the day of the murder and that would be on February 9th and we may never know the exact order of events or what exactly happened to lead to this on that particular day but Essie Albin was murdered. She was found on February 11th in the attic of the Powell home. This is where we get into some of the more unusual or different aspects of the investigation than you know we may be used to hearing about or it may have been different back then. The first was a coroner's jury was convened. And a coroner's jury is not a grand jury where they decide whether or not to indict. It was not the trial jury where the determination of guilt or an acquittal is made. This is determined when there is a suspicious death, how that death occurred. Was it murder, suicide, accident, natural causes, or undetermined? It's really like an inquest. And there was a time where they would actually even name a person or likely suspect. So you know, they would find that it was homicide with a certain person as the likely suspect. I don't hear of that as much today, and that might be more for liability reasons, though I can't say it never happens, but a lot of the times when I hear mention of it in more modern cases, it will say something like, you know, homicide by person or persons unknown. Mr. Ira Downs was the pharmacist in town. He was also a member of the coroner's jury. He did attend to the scene that night when she was found. Essie's body had been horribly mutilated and there was a lot of trauma to the body as anyone could see that night. While on the night that Essie disappeared, Mrs. Powell had said that to other people. People had gathered to try to look for her. So I I do find it unusual that It took that long to find Essie, even though later on I'll mention some conflicting information about that as well. So there were actually a number of people on the scene the night that um, Essie was found. There was not only the Powell family, but Ira Downs also went there. Um, Two doctors were there as well. One also with the last name of Downs. His name was Bennett Downs, and I don't know if he was related to Ira Downs, but again, kind of, if he is, then that's getting close to maybe having some type of conflict with any decisions being made. There was also another doctor named Dr. Hoey, and the coroner, only referred to as his last name of Abbott, was there, as well as a couple of other people from the community. When the coroner's jury convened, Dr. Bennett Downs gave testimony that she had died from her throat being cut. There was also another doctor. His name was Dr. Hoey, so I'm hoping I'm saying that right. But he said he thought it was possible for Essie to have stabbed herself and had killed herself. In the very first article that mentioned a number of wounds, it said that she had been stabbed 54 times. So personally, I think it it really needs to be looked into a little bit. You know, more if someone's been stabbed that many times But initially that night, it was determined to be a suicide. And in fact, the coroner um, Abbott actually allowed for Mrs. Powell and other members of the community to start washing Essie to prepare her for the funeral. So, you know, very quickly that occurred. Now, I also mentioned about the discrepancies in the time frame, it's very clear that yes, she died on the 9th. That is well established. There were a couple of different sources that said she was found on the 11th. However, Ira Downs, who served as the secretary of the coroner's jury, stated that Mrs. Powell came to the drugstore, the pharmacy the night of the 9th or Tuesday is what he said. but looking at the dates, Tuesday was the 9th, and with the upcoming arrest that we'll see, there was not enough time for another Tuesday to go by. Also, it says that um, she was reported missing at 11 o'clock at night, so that's kind of a discrepancy as well. Was the pharmacy open at 11, or did Mr. Downs allow people to come, you know, at any time of the day or night if needed? And that also begs the question, why did she come to pharmacist instead of a doctor if mrs powell you know she knew that essie had been injured then by that point and was dead we might ask ourselves why did she go to the pharmacy and not a doctor or police officer given that the population of the town was so low i do have to wonder if there was anybody else that she could have gone to ira down said that when mrs powell saw him that she told him that, quote, I've got something in my garret I wouldn't have there for $500. It's the body of a girl with her throat cut, End quote. With the testimony provided, the magistrate that was overseeing the coroner's jury said that it was by death by suicide. There was a lot of criticism towards the coroner's jury with the finding of suicide, So they actually reconvened at the magistrate's house. So again, kind of wondering if that's just because it was the most convenient place rather than going to Dover. And because the town was so small and sparsely populated, that was the best place for them to meet. However, not all of the members of the original coroner's jury was there. So that's also kind of dubious in my opinion. After further discussion and testimony from the doctors that attended the scene, it was found that Dr. Hoey did not disclose all of the injuries. There was at least one large head injury, which he accounted for by saying she could have hit her head against the rafters, or there was a sausage cutter that was mounted near the door. So those were some ways she could have injured herself. There were a number of injuries to the forearms and to her hands, which looking at it from a modern perspective, sounds like defense wounds to me. And he didn't really look at those or mention them in the original um, the original jury as well. When asked, you know, why didn't you mention these things? He His response was he wasn't asked. So that leads to a lot of circular logic. Okay, the The doctor didn't give testimony about certain injuries because he wasn't asked, yet he's the medical professional who can differentiate different types of wounds and give opinions. And if he doesn't tell them that there was this injury and how it could have affected her, how are they to know? And so it's just, you know, back and forth. Who was to blame for not asking the question or not providing the answer To me, it goes to Dr. Huey because, you know, again, how is the jury supposed to know what that injury was from, whether it was blunt force, a stab wound, or, you know, whatever it was? They're not medically trained. And things that we see today as, you know, common sense or common knowledge, they didn't necessarily know that in those days. So what we might look at and say, oh, well, those are obviously defense wounds, they may not have even thought about that. And it was up to the doctor to really describe the cause of death. And just to leave that injury out, the injury to the head, and then the cuts to the arms and hands, that was a big omission. So after reviewing everything again, the coroner's jury came back with a ruling that it was a homicide. On February 14th, The day that so many people remember as a day to spend with your love, Essie Aubin was laid to rest. As Essie was laid out in the parlor, when Marianne Powell entered the room, she was dressed head to toe in black, including a veil. She sobbed very loudly throughout the whole time at the casket. She screamed, Oh my God, my God, and acted as though she were going to faint. This garnered her the support of people around her, helping her to stand. Many did look at her suspiciously because, while not mentioned in the coroner's jury, she had a large gash on her forehead as well as a swollen lip, which makes me think about why she had on a black veil. Yes, I know things like that were worn in those time periods, but, you know, it just adds another layer to me at least and makes me wonder if she was trying to hide something. While Essie's body had been described in a number of different ways, such as mutilated and butchered, she still was in her casket with her face exposed where people of all ages, including children, could come to view her. And I I am sure there were people there not to... You know, show support to you know whether they believed the pals had anything to do with her death, or to support her sisters. There were people there because they either cared about the family or Essie, but there were others who were just there, I believe, to be part of the the big story of the day or be there for gossip. And very young children were allowed to see a very graphic scene that many children may not have emotionally been ready for. The face that they looked upon was littered with numerous cuts across the chin, lips, throats, and cheeks. And in what was visible of her hand and other parts of her body, there were very discernible cuts as well. The newspaper also reported that women who viewed the body were... Swooning and acting like they were going to faint. Just as a little side note, too, if the newspapers around that time, reading through the stories, um, sometimes the advertisements looked exactly like a story, as well as there were serial novels printed in the newspapers as well. I even ran across one um, from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that was being printed. And one newspaper actually printed the names of people who checked into a local motel. So what we see as journalism today, as well as, or compared to 1904, yes, there are completely different standards in terms of some of the things that are reported, as well as the way they're reported. Frankly, given sometimes the state of the news today, I can't tell you which one is more accurate, but... Just a lot of times the newspapers that I read, um, they tend to either use very flowery language or they can exaggerate in a lot of different ways, but we see that sometimes today too. As Marianne Powell, her husband, and many others were leaving their home to go to the cemetery to see Essie interred, police arrived to arrest Marianne Powell it was said that it was not really a surprise as many of those in attendance had anticipated at some point she would be arrested. Marianne apparently said some things to her husband and was also allowed to change if necessary even though it was reported that she didn't really change that much. While leaving, the only thing that she really did that Some might find a little unusual is instead of, you know, talking longer with her husband or trying to give people information, she saw one of the farm workers named Pete and she said to him, quote, Pete, I may come back and I may not. Maybe they'll find out who did this, end quote. So it was kind of a way for her to say, hey, I'm innocent without coming out and saying I'm innocent and... She also appeared by doing that, that she was keeping her nerve, as was repeatedly stated in the articles, Um, she was keeping her nerve very well and was remaining calm. She was then taken to Dover by Detective Ratledge, who I see his name quite a bit through other articles as well. She was driven by horse and carriage, which does remind us while over the course of You know, all of history. It's not that long ago that this case happened, Um, a little over 100 years, but at the same time, there were so many changes between now and then that it seems like it could be from centuries ago. Marianne's next scheduled court date after that was for February 23rd, and that would be a hearing. The police themselves were pretty satisfied that Marianne Powell was the murderer of Essie Albin. At times, she was left in solitary confinement for hours, and there was no interaction with anybody, and at other times, she was questioned quite exhaustively without a break. She was originally placed in a cell with a young woman, and this also emphasizes just how long ago, as far as society goes, um, that this took place. The person she was originally placed in a cell with was a young woman who had been arrested and jailed because she was white and she was living with a black man. So presumably they were both arrested. It's just as this is in relation to Mary Ann Powell. It only mentioned the young woman, but yes, she was actually in jail for loving somebody and an accused murderer was placed in the cell with her. What happened next was described by law enforcement as when Marianne was placed in the cell with the young woman that the young woman started to scream hysterically and it was stated that she acted extremely fearful Fearful to the point that the sheriff decided that the best thing to do would be to take Mrs. Powell out of the cell and put her in another cell. However, what this really did do was act as solitary confinement, even though those words were not explicitly used by law enforcement. I did see it used by newspaper accounts, but law enforcement never actually said those words. In order to avoid her from having any type of human interaction, there was no visitation at all. It was not stated whether or not she was allowed to meet with her legal team, but um, it was stated that she was to have no visitors. So her husband couldn't come and, you know, speak with her. The actual um, cell itself was a wooden door and it had, you know, an opening where food could be slid in through the door Um, or someone could check in using the little window that, you know, was covered by a wooden door. So Marianne was in a cell by herself. Um, I don't know if there was any lighting in there, as that's not mentioned, but she was in there pretty much the whole day, except when she was being interrogated, and when she was interrogated, those sessions could last for an extremely long period of time. So, this is one of those things where I'm not sure if it would be allowed today, but that's what occurred during this case. Journalists still were acting and reporting as if they were enamored of the fact that a woman had committed or had been accused of committing this type of crime. They did tend to emphasize more about her demeanor and how strong she was and how strong her nerve was throughout the whole time period of this case. And if there was a break in that, quote, nerve, that would be very quickly reported upon as well. There were a few different articles that would state how she had eaten that day, such as she didn't have as much of an appetite to she ate heartily. Um, Also, it reported on how well the sheriff said she slept the previous night. Now, going by the premise that all people are innocent until proven guilty, there were still some things that were being denied of Mrs. Powell. And she had wanted to meet with her husband and discuss some things because she said she needed to look at paperwork for her oldest children. So where some things are unclear here is whether or not these were children that she had had with her first husband or whether or not these were children that she considered her adopted children but were not technically her children. It was never clearly stated whether or not she had had children with her first husband only that she did not have any children with Alfred Powell and looking at her age in, the, in her 50s at the time of this, and that they'd only been married about seven years, she wouldn't have been able, most likely, to have children with Alfred. However, nothing stated about her previous husband and any children they may have had together. What made, though, meeting with her husband even more important would be that he was not able to read. Marianne took care of everything in regards to paperwork and things like that and given the time period it was not really that unusual for someone not to know how to read. So if she had been truly innocent then that would have been denying her husband and other children things that they may have needed. As I've discussed there were you know quite a few things reported that we wouldn't necessarily deem as important today. And even though the newspaper seemed to be more focused on how she was doing emotionally as, you know, a woman in jail, the police were observing other things about her behavior and character that they wanted to explore further. One was the fact that she always kept one of her hands hidden. Um, she would have it hidden within the folds of her dress and so the police did deduce she probably had some type of injury however when they did ask or let her know that they were going to bring in some medical care that um she denied that she wanted medical care but you know of course they did bring someone in and the doctor who came a doctor wilson he did find that the hand was sprained as well as having a number of cuts on the same hand at the same time he was doing that he also took scrapings from underneath of her fingernails so it didn't mention whether or not there was a warrant to do so but we know today most likely if she had denied the officer's access, you know, to be able to do fingernail scrapings, then today she they probably would have needed a warrant to do so. Rumors had begun to spread that she had confessed to the murder, but the sheriff was denying that, saying that she had not confessed to anything. However, what she did say was yes, she had been jealous of Essie Albin. This gave the sheriff an idea of what the motive could have been. When she was asked how her hand received some of the cuts, she replied that it was done because of splinters, that splinters had you know, somehow scratched her hand numerous times. Dr. Wilson said that there was no way that the injury was caused or injuries were caused by splinters. Okay, now we're going to review a couple different theories of the crime that were reported in the newspapers and there were two theories as to how the crime actually occurred. Personally there is one theory that I hold to be a little more plausible than the other and when the case actually did go to trial the prosecution had settled on one rather than the other. So the first theory is that Essie had been in the washroom working on laundry when, for whatever reason, an altercation had begun, and Mrs. Powell began to chase Essie. Essie ran around the house. Um, They both ended up in the house, and after a confrontation, Mary and Powell had killed Essie. Panicking, she then carried Essie up to the attic. This is where I have the issue here, is with carrying her up to the attic. You know, anybody who's carrying a person who's considered dead weight, whether or not she was just passed out or had actually died by that point, it would be very difficult to go up those stairs. It does also, um, when reviewing some other information that Mrs. Powell came, seem like she would have had to go up at least two flights of stairs. So, you know, they were on the first floor. She would have taken you know the first set of stairs to the second floor and then from there to the attic. So that just seems like it would be extremely difficult for anybody, man or woman, and to have a woman in her 50s carrying up, you know, this young woman to the attic just seemed like it wasn't plausible. The second theory involves either Mrs. Powell luring Essie up to the attic, you know, saying that she may have needed help with something or, you know, something along those lines, or that Mrs. Powell was up in the attic and Essie went up there to confront her, possibly vice versa. But in this theory, it does involve Essie going up to the attic without you know, someone having to carry her. The rest is pretty much the same. There was an, an altercation where Mrs. Powell killed the young woman. Going back to the head injury that Dr. Hui had you know, neglected to discuss during the original coroner's jury. It was suspected that Mrs. Powell hit her in the back of the head first and then attacked her with a knife. When Mrs. Powell was in jail, her clothes were examined. She apparently had not changed her undergarments since the attack because they had blood on one sleeve. It did not say whether or not that sleeve was from the same hand that was injured because to me that could also then lead to questions of was it her or Essie's blood and we have to remember these are this is a number of days after Essie had died this is at least on the 14th or 15th of February and Essie had died on the 9th so you know that means she would have been in those at least the undergarments for that period of time because it was not washed So it wasn't as though she washed it, but the blood just didn't come out. But the, you know, the fabric itself had actually been cleaned. No, it was, you know, the same garment that had not been washed. Her clothing was sent to the state lab because they were going to try to determine whether or not it was human blood. And then also they were able to find the dress that she was wearing on the 9th and there were no visible stains, but the dress was described as being dark, so it also was sent to a state lab to be examined under a microscope to determine whether or not they could see microscopic um, parts or particles of blood. She was eventually allowed to go to the home and gather some things. Some were Um, some papers that she needed to discuss with her husband and she was allowed to converse with him and his brother. She also got some cash, which presumably was in order for her to hire her own lawyers. Her husband had wanted to hire some lawyers, but she decided to go with who she preferred as compared to who her husband had chosen. This was interesting because Mr. Powell had chosen um, two different attorneys, one by the name of Richard Kenney, who had been a former senator. So he would have carried some clout as far as, you know, credibility, at least at that time with being a senator, um, as well as, you know, another attorney. However, Mrs. Powell decided to go with attorneys named Henry Ridgely Jr. and Frank Davis. Alfred Powell, though, stood very firmly by his wife's side, supporting her and even purchasing things that she would be allowed to have in her cell. Um, These things were described as furnishings, and they would increase his wife's comfort while having to stay in jail. Shortly before the trial was to begin, It was found that an error was made on some of the paperwork um, involving the grand jury. During the indictment, it, it said in the paperwork that the murder took place in an area of Bowers Beach named North Murder Kill. Yes, Murder Kill, all one word when in fact it actually took place in South Murder Kill. So she had to be indicted again with the correction made regarding whether it was North or South. And there is also a Murder Kill River, and that remains to this day. So I, I did look that up, and I'm like, that, who named an area of town Murder Kill? But apparently someone named areas of the town as well as a river. Murder kill. So, I don't know if that was kind of foreboding that at least one murder would take place in an area where there's only on average, you know, maybe around 200 people, possibly 300 that live there. So, yeah, that's, I honestly have no idea why it was named that, but that's where this crime took place. With that, I think I'm going to stop today's episode just because the next steps go into the trial and I don't want to stop mid-trial and you know have to recap what had already been said during the trial. So when we start the next episode it will be with the testimony that's provided at the trial which will include testimony from Essie's sisters as well as some of the other children that had lived within the home. I'd like to thank everybody for listening today and I know we're going back quite a few years but you know the case is interesting to me in the fact that you know Essie had been put in this situation and you know she was a child when she was and the people who were supposed to love her it seems like they betrayed her and you know not taking proper care of her until one day everything just erupted in violence and to see what according to testimony they did to other children it just makes me angry that people can take advantage of those that need help the most because you know children especially looking at Essie starting to live there when she was 14 during very formative years of her life for some of the other children that we'll hear about that they were mistreated horribly as well. And what was it for? I mean, we really can't say, um, you know, why, but it occurred. And so, you know, like I said previously, we'll look at a couple cases that are more modern near the end of um, this case and just see, you know, what do we need to learn from something that not only took place a hundred plus years ago, but where similar cases are happening still now. So I do hope everybody's found this episode informative to this point. And, you know, I will have this second part of this episode out by next Friday and hopefully a little bit sooner. I hope everybody has a great rest of your week and I will talk to you all soon. Bye.